Well, as we come to open the Word of God together, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that indeed you do hold us fast. Oh, Father, if it were up to us, up to the strength of our hold on you, we would all be lost. And yet we know that we are held by the almighty hands. We know that through Christ we are loved. Through Christ we are accepted. That even though our sins are great, your mercy is greater. And so we rejoice, we rest in the promises of the gospel this morning. And as we open your word, I pray that your spirit, who authored this word, would speak it afresh to our hearts. It's in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, I would invite you to open up your copy of God's word to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, as we begin our study this morning. For those of you who have been with us, you've seen, as we've been tracking the life of Christ through Luke chapters 1, 2, 3, and the first part of 4. And in these opening chapters of the book of Luke, Luke the author has been showing Jesus as the one qualified to be the Messiah. He is the hope of Israel and the hope of the world. Everything from his birth to the arrival of his forerunner, John the Baptist, to his baptism and temptations point to the unmistakable truth that Jesus of Nazareth was uniquely suited, set apart, and called to be the Savior of the world. And in this narrative, in Luke 1, 2, 3, in the first part of 4, we've seen Jesus, the focus has been on, on him as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And how from the beginning, although being born like every other human being, he was different from all other people. He was unique. But at this point in the narrative, Jesus has been somewhat passive. Last week, we saw him begin to act as he preached in Nazareth before he was dragged out of town. But this week, in our passage, we're going to see the Messiah on the move. Jesus is now going into enemy-occupied territory and will be, begin dismantling the powers that hold people in darkness. And so let's read our passage this morning. Luke chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 31 and read through verse 37. Luke 4, beginning in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, 
he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. In this text, this passage this morning, as Jesus challenges the forces of darkness, we will see three tactics that Jesus employs to attack Satan and his demons. Three tactics that Jesus employs. The first tactic that we'll see in verses 31 and 32 is his authoritative teaching. His authoritative teaching. Look in verse 31. And he, being Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. Now, verse 31 picks up the account after verse 30, in which he had just almost been murdered in Nazareth for his teaching there. They were angered that he identified himself as the spirit-anointed Messiah, that he claimed to be on the, the same level as the great prophets of old, comparing himself with Elijah and Elisha. But more deeply cutting, he had compared the people of Nazareth with the unbelieving Israel of the Old Testament. And they could put up with that no longer. So he leaves Nazareth. And verse 31 says he came down to Capernaum. Now Capernaum was a village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And recent excavations have revealed where this was. In fact, they've Excavations have revealed even the synagogue of which is spoken of here. And for those who have been to Israel, have been able to stand in the midst of the, the columns and there in the reconstructed uh, synagogue there in Capernaum and imagining what a scene like even we read in our passage today might have looked like. But Capernaum became a strategic city because it sat along a major trade route. As you think of the larger region of Israel, and you had major powers such as Egypt down in the south, and you had other, other major world powers in the north and in the east, they would have to cut through Israel and get between those two major powers. And Capernaum sat on one of those trade routes, going up towards Damascus, or down to the sea and down to Egypt. There was also a productive fishing industry that took place there on the Sea of Galilee and so provided great uh, opportunities for the fishermen to be able to sell their wares to those and their, their product to those who were on that trade route. Now, it was to this city of Capernaum that Jesus permanently moves for the remainder of his life. Now, Jesus is, is all over the place, as we know from the gospel accounts. He's never uh, living in one place at one time for very long. And even in Capernaum, it, it's hard to tell whether he even had a permanent residence or a, a permanent house. He may have just stayed with others that were there, such as Peter. But the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus no longer saw Nazareth as his home base. After that initial rejection, he moves permanently to Capernaum. But not only did he move himself and his disciples, his preaching band, but he moves his family as well. 
with Joseph seemingly out of the picture, as best we can tell from the narrative, Jesus is the oldest child. And so being the oldest son, he moves his mother and his siblings to Capernaum as well. This is indicated in John 2, verse 12, as well as Matthew 4, verse 13. So while he's here in Capernaum, he seems to have spent some time here. This doesn't seem to be the first uh, aspect of ministry that we read about here. It seems that he's been teaching on a regular basis. Chapter 4, verse uh, 14 and 15 tells of other teaching ministries. So we know that, uh, that he's been doing some ministry already. But here, Luke focuses on one particular Sabbath, one particular Saturday, where he's teaching in the synagogue. And this teaching, verse 32, astonished them. It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This word astonished, it can mean shocked or uh, to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. They were simply at wit's end trying to understand what they were witnessing right in front of them. This one was, his teaching was so different from what they had heard. Mark tells us that they, they were astonished at his teaching because his teaching was different from the scribes. See, the scribes were all focused on tradition, that they simply wanted to uh, talk about different interpretations of the word, and they would quote other rabbis, and they would simply pass down and hand on this tradition that they already knew. It was a borrowed authority, but Jesus taught with a direct authority. He dealt with the text independently and, and confidently. He wasn't driven by tradition like the scribes were. He had authority. And this recognition of authority, I believe, also points to the fact that the people recognize that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That just like the prophets of old who spoke authoritatively for God, so Jesus was seen as a prophet speaking for God, that he too had been empowered by the Spirit speaking on behalf. And so Jesus joins the ranks of these Old Testament prophets, coming in the name of the Lord and speaking them the word of God. And as we can see here, this reception is better than the one in Nazareth, right? Uh, at least they're giving him a hearing, and they're impressed by what they hear compared to dragging him out and seeking to kill him. Now Luke doesn't specify here what is the teaching included. What was he expounding? What was he teaching on? In one sense, that's not the point. The point is to recognize that they saw something different in Jesus than any other teacher at that time. It would seem to make sense that maybe coming off of Nazareth, he too brought that same message to Capernaum that he is indeed the Spirit-anointed Messiah. The Spirit has come upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. I, I'm here to proclaim this message of liberation. I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the greater son of David who will sit upon the throne forever. Repent and believe. But you see, by Jesus stepping in here to Capernaum and announcing that he was the deliverer, come to crush the head of the serpent, he was directly provoking Satan and his forces. And it didn't go without notice. 
And this leads us to Jesus' second tactic. First tactic being his authoritative teaching. Second tactic, his authoritative presence. His authoritative presence. And we see this in verses 33 and 34. Verses 33 and 34. It says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. A spirit of an unclean demon. So here we're told that as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, there's a man there with with a demon inside of him. He's demon-possessed. Says that he has this a spirit of an unclean demon. Unclean being simply another way to talk about evil, wicked. Now we as we've talked about a few weeks ago, demons, along with their leader Satan, were originally angels created by God in heaven. They were there to worship God. But as these angels followed Satan, their leader, in rebellion against the Lord, they fell with him, and therefore we refer to them as fallen angels or demons. And these forces of evil, Satan and his demons, have been opposing God and his representatives, God and his people here on this earth, ever since the beginning, through all human history. And Satan remains active and in that work of opposition. The Bible reveals that there's a certain sense in which he's the ruler of this present age, the ruler of this world. The all, verse John 5.19 says that this whole world lies under the power of the evil one. He still has an influential power on this planet. And Jesus reveals in John chapter 8, verse 44, that all those who are unbelievers, all those who reject the living God, are really Satan's followers. They're children of Satan. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says that unbelievers have had their minds blinded by Satan. Satan and his demons have been active and are still active in opposing the work of God. Now, demonic activity, particularly demon uh, uh, possession, has uh, came to prominence, particularly in the scriptural narrative, in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And the explanation for this is simple. As Jesus, the God in human flesh, shows up on the scene the, the, the prime example, the prime candidate of representative, the prime representative of God shows up. Satan unleashes all of his forces on that representative. This is his best chance to attack God himself when he's in this weakened human flesh. And so, as Jesus arrives on earth Satan and his minions begin to attack. We already saw Satan seek to tempt Jesus and derail him from his mission. But now his demons are going out and seeking to oppose as well. And that continued into the establishment of the church, as we see in the book of Acts. That as the church was being established and the gospel was going out and gaining new territory for Jesus Christ, the devil was seeking to stop that. And yet the power of God was seen dominating there as well. 
So here we have a man who had a demon in him. A demon oppression is simply the reality where a demon would come into a person and control their actions. It's important to specify that this was not just insanity. In other words, some read the gospel accounts and read about demon possession and think that it's simply a, a fantastical way to describe what we know today in our enlightened psychological understanding to be simply insanity. That somebody just, they were just insane and they happened to describe it back then in their simplified understanding as demon possession. But there's indications that these demons acted rationally. There's rational conversation. This isn't just pure insanity. There's dialogue with these demons. We must trust the account of the Word of God as accurate as written. And so the people who had the demon inside of them seemed to be at the mercy of the demon, unable to do anything about it. Now, it's important as a side note here to say that the Bible uh, gives no indication that Christians can be possessed by a demon today. That we, as followers of Jesus Christ, those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, cannot be indwelt by a demon. We might be able to be oppressed or attacked, but we cannot be possessed by a demon. Because the Bible's clear that, that because we are indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the devil cannot reside in the same space. Our hearts belong to the Lord, and therefore, this is His territory. But we, we must remember, as we've been saying, that Satan and his demonic forces are active today. And we need not fear them, but we can't ignore them. The Bible is clear what we are supposed to do. We aren't called to cast out demons ourselves. God doesn't want us looking for demons under every rock under, as an explanation for everything all around us. We're not to be interacting with demons. We're simply to be watchful, to be sober-minded, and to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. We rest in Christ. We resist him. We cling to the truth, cling to the Lord, and God takes care of the rest. But here in Luke 4, this man is possessed by a demon, and he, and he makes himself, the demon makes himself known in the midst of the synagogue with a loud shriek, a loud voice. It says in verse 33, and he cried out with a loud voice. I mean, I, I can't imagine what a demonic shriek would have been like, but all eyes are instantly on this man. Now, we don't know if this possession had been... This man had been possessed for a long period of time. We don't know if it just happened right there in that moment. The text doesn't say. The point is that he has it at this moment. Now, this demon is disturbed by Jesus' teaching, no doubt, but he's particularly disturbed by the presence of Jesus. He's asking, what are you doing here? Why are, why are you here where I'm at? In the gospel accounts, as we'll see even here, demons commonly address Jesus out of fear and terror. They're scared because they know that one greater than them is in their midst. Well, the, the demon cries out through this man, and his, his statement in verse 34 is, is composed of, of four different parts. First is, is an exclamation. The ESV English Standard Version here says, Ha! Other translations have some variation of, Leave us alone. And these, these are an exclamation of indignation. 
There's a dislike in the sound of the demon. And there's debate about whether it's an exclamation or whether it's a verb and therefore the different translations. But the point is the same. There's an emotion and a displeasure in this, this, this shrieking out to Jesus. He feels threatened and he doesn't like Jesus being there. But secondly, he's, he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The demon knows that he's facing his enemy right in front of him. And he wants to know why Jesus has come into his territory. Why are you here? What are you going to do? What's your intent? But notice that he says us. He's speaking on behalf of the whole demonic army. What have you to do with us? And he knows who this man is. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him by his name. But thirdly, he says, have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? This demon knows that Jesus will have a hand in the destruction of all demonic forces one day. He knows that this is the one on behalf of God who, who will strike the fatal blow. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus showed up to destroy Satan and his works. And so the demon's scared. Have you come to destroy us? Is it today? Came earlier than I thought. He was terrified. But finally he says, I know who you are. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon now speaks in the first person, singular rather than the plural, rather than us, he says, I, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, where does this name come from? Why is he called Jesus the Holy One of God? Well, I believe the name Holy One, referring to Jesus, and it wasn't just used by demons. We see uh, the apostles use it in John chapter 6. But I believe it's an indication of the fact that Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore he is the Holy One. On top of this, we know that his character is pure and undefiled. He is sinless, and therefore he is the Holy One. He is set apart by God, and he is pure and undefiled. And therefore, he can be called the Holy One. The demon was right. He is the Holy One of God. But one of the interesting features of demonic encounters in the Gospels is that the demons almost always speak or attempt to speak Jesus' true identity. And yet Jesus shuts them down. He doesn't allow the demons to continue to, to speak the truth. As we'll see that in a moment, even in this account. But I want us to think about, just for a moment, the confession of demons. The fact that what the demon says here is accurate. It's true. But, but the demons are the farthest thing from the saints. The farthest thing from those who would be called the people of God. Or, and what we see here is the fact that you can have those who have right doctrine 
and yet do not have salvation. It's possible to confess the right truth and yet not truly believe. And we see this in James chapter 2. In fact, uh, we can turn there in James chapter 2 verse 19. James makes this clear. James chapter 2 verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's a certain sense in which the demons believe the truth about God. But, and they act upon it. That's James' point here. They believe something and they act upon that belief. They, in their position, shudder. Salvation is not available to them. And so all they can do is be in fear and terror before God. And James is calling out people who claim to believe and yet do nothing to act upon that belief. In other words, the demons act more on their faith than you act upon yours. And this is the sad reality, that there are those who can claim to be Christians, who claim to believe the truth that Jesus is who he says he is, and yet their life shows no fruit, shows no reality that they actually believe that at all. And in one sense, therefore, we're falling under the same indictment that James makes. That the demons act more upon their faith than these quote-unquote Christians. Folks, the history of the church is full of examples of people who think they have the right doctrine. And think that simply to be able to fill out a certain doctrinal statement or to check yes on the questionnaire is enough. And yet, the truth hasn't sunk in. The truth has not transformed their life. And so it causes us to pause and to think about our own faith, to think about our own confession. Do we believe Jesus is who He said He is, that He truly is the Son of God, that He is the Holy One, that He is the One through which each one of us can find salvation? And does that change how we live? Does it cause us to go out into the world and into our lives and live as if Jesus is Lord? Or is Jesus being Lord just some words on a page to you? We need to examine our faith and see if we, it has radically transformed us. And if we find our faith lacking, we need to come again on our knees before our merciful Savior. There's no hill we have to climb. There's no works that we have to perform. We simply come by the grace of God in the gospel and confess Jesus as Lord. Repent of our sin. Turn away from our indifference to Jesus. And see and confess him and, and ask that he would transform us, that we'd be different people. That we wouldn't just be Christians who profess a certain faith with our mouth, but that live radically different Monday, Friday. So after seeing Jesus' authoritative teaching and presence, the text then reveals his next tactic. And that is 
his authoritative power. His authoritative power. Jesus has let this demon talk long enough. It's time to take care of business. Jesus cuts off the demon. We see here in verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. The word rebuke here is used three times in the remainder of this chapter. Luke is clearly highlighting this, this word that, that Jesus is, has this rebuking power, that he can speak authoritatively and forcefully, and he can, he can get results because he is Lord. Rebuke simply means to express strong disapproval of someone. Jesus says, be silent, come out of him. His command is short, it's to the point. You see, Jesus says to be silent because he doesn't tolerate having demonic witness to him. He lets the scriptures witness to him. He lets believers, those with faith, whether it be Jew or Gentile, witness to him. But he doesn't want the demonic world witnessing to him. He doesn't let that stand. As you know, later on in his ministry, he's going to be accused of doing all that he does by the power of Satan. People are going to ask, hey, what, by what power do you do this? And the Pharisees are going to say, oh, it's because of Beelzebub. It's because of, of, of Satan in him. And so Jesus wants to distance himself completely. He doesn't want these demons speaking the truth about his, his identity. He doesn't want any association with these evil beings. And as we see, does this demon begin to argue? Does he talk back? No, he doesn't bargain or anything. He instantly obeys at the voice of Jesus. And so the, the demon throws the man down in their midst, Luke says. Mark describes it as the man convulsed and shrieked, cried out in a loud voice again. And then the demon came out of him, having done him no harm. And so in spite of the violent exit, the man sustained no bodily injuries, Luke, the physician, gives us a medic update here, letting us know that the body was not harmed. And you can imagine, you've gone to the synagogue there in Capernaum every Sabbath day for years. Now there's lots of great excitement. This man, Jesus, is there. But something happened here with a man with a demon showing up and then right here in your midst, Jesus speaks, and the demon leaves him. The man's in his right mind and is unharmed. You can imagine how that would affect all the observers. And Luke is faithful to record their reaction. It says, verse 36, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. It created such a buzz. They started talking to one another, it says. You know, turning to their neighbor and this, this loud whispering and talking and going, oh my goodness, what's, can you believe this? I haven't seen this before. Did you see that? They're all shocked. They're in awe at Jesus' display of power and authority. And they're trying to understand it. Like, what is this word, they say? What is this message? What is this logos? Because this word just came out of this man's mouth and, and we saw instant reaction. We saw instant results. 
You see, it was in contrast. There were, there were Jewish exorcists of that day that tried to, to remove demons out of people. But they often had completely different methods. They, they would attempt superstitious rituals, and, and they were often odd and time-consuming. For example, they would uh, try to scare a demon out of somebody. I mean, kind of the classic, uh, you know, boo, and try to get someone to, you know, in our case, we guess we do that for like hiccups and things, but um, I don't know how they'd try to scare a demon out of them, but uh, they would also have this idea that, that they would try to make the demon too sick to stay uh, in the person and try to get the demon to get out of there. And they would do that by, by putting a smelly root up the possessed person's nose and hope the demon would not be able to stand it. I'm sure the person couldn't stand it. Um, but again, with that as a background and those attempts being made that maybe they've heard about or seen, and then right here in their midst, Jesus doesn't bring out any of that. There's no guesswork here. Jesus simply speaks authoritatively and rebukes the demon. A simple command. The power of his speech. And that is reminiscent of what we read about in the Old Testament scriptures. Going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. God spoke and this world came to be. God spoke and creation came about into existence. God had told Moses to simply speak to the rock and have water gush forth from it. We also think of God talking to Satan and commanding Satan in Job chapter 1 and 2. And whatever God tells Satan, that's what Satan must do. He is bound by the command of God. And so here, Jesus speaks and the demon is bound by the command of Jesus. The Son of God, possessing the Spirit of God, speaks with the same power and authority as God Almighty seen throughout the Old Testament. His authority. He's the only one in the right position to have control over the demonic hosts. And he's the only one that has this power of God upon him. The Spirit-anointed one to be able to free the oppressed. The people cannot believe that they witnessed this. These evil spiritual beings that people are powerless to control, Jesus handles easily. And so we see here in this text that Jesus has stepped into enemy territory. And the demons recognize it. But Jesus has won the decisive victory. Clearly, it wasn't even a contest. Now, remember the last time he faced the enemy, he was on the defensive. It was when Satan came to him in the wilderness and he was being tempted, and Jesus was not on the offensive, he was on the defensive. He simply had to take the volleys from, from Satan and respond with the word of God and, and, and ward off the attacks. But now Jesus is on the attack. Now Jesus is able to step in and bring about dominance and change. Well, the crowds can't contain themselves. They start telling everybody they know, verse 37. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. There was no village that didn't hear about this news. They all heard of what Jesus had done. As one commentator said, this news was too good and too exciting to be confined to Capernaum. 
And so as people spread out, they begin to tell about Jesus. Well, as we finish this morning, I want us to think about this fact that what we see going on here is really a continuation of this great cosmic battle between God and the forces of Satan. A battle that began in the beginning and continues on even to this day. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan and his demons have been seeking to oppose God and his representatives here on earth. But the lines are drawn clearly. On one side is the devil and his demons. They are the epitome of evil. They are wicked to their core and exist only to do as much chaos, sin, destruction, and deception as they possibly can. And it's on this side of the battle that humanity in mass resides. Humanity, humans by nature, are children of wrath. They are children of the devil. People are born into sin. Our allegiance is to the devil from the womb. That's why conversion is necessary. And so, with that as one side of the battle, the other side is the side of the triune God. He created the world, including Satan and the fallen angels. He's sovereign over all, and none can stay his hand. He's all-powerful. And as we know, this triune God, the Father, has sent the Son into the world to be Savior of all who would believe. And here's the thing for us today. You're either on one side or the other. We either stand with Satan and his demons or we stand with God Almighty and with Jesus. Either you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God sent from heaven as the only acceptable sacrifice to absorb the wrath you deserved or you reject Christ and stand on the side of the devil. Now listen, we live in a, in, a, in a modern age and a materialistic age in which the education establishment and the elite have been shoving down our throats this lie that the material world is all that exists, that any sort of supernatural, any sort of spiritual is not real, and it's all a figment of our imagination. And... They want to say that the only that is what is natural, only what we can see, what we can touch, is what's true and what exists. And therefore, they would say to believe in demons or in Satan is ludicrous and is insanity. It's on the same level, same category as unicorn and cyclops. It's some fairy tale, some folk tale that, yeah, sure, you can believe, but it doesn't really exist. And so they hear everything that we, I've said this morning and would say, you're just in the middle of a delusion about some spiritual beings out there that just make you feel better. But ironically, this is just another lie of the devil. You see, he wins whether we believe in his existence or not. Whether we think that he's this great power and we're scared of him and we, and we, and we live our lives in fear and controlled by the devil, or whether we write him off altogether and don't even think that he's a true, real being and just carry on with our lives, he wins. As long as people reject Christ and live for themselves, then he succeeds. But our passage today, along with the rest of the scriptures, reveals clearly that God exists, that Satan and his demons exist, 
and therefore to have a true worldview, to be able to see this world, this planet, this life, your every day, truthfully. We need to see these battle lines that are drawn. Recognize that it is a battle between God and Satan. Satan is real. Jesus is more real. He stands victorious over Satan and his demons. And one day, Jesus will, will wipe the final blow and send Satan and his minions to the lake of fire to be, to be there forever. And there will be no more wickedness. There will be no more evil. And we long for that day. But today, the battle lines are drawn and we, each one of us, need to know what side we're on. Do you know what side you're on? Do you stand with Jesus who has authority and power over all? The call to all humanity today is to look to Christ and to be saved, to trust in him, the one who has all power and all authority. And I pray that you would trust and believe in him today. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we exult in the name of your Son. Almighty Jesus, who even though he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on human flesh, becoming like us, through the power of the Spirit, he showed himself to be the magnificent warrior and deliverer, obeying you every step of his life on this earth and striking a death blow to Satan and his demons. Father, I pray for all those who are listening this morning that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would reject their own selfishness, living for themselves, seeking to be Lord themselves, and would trust wholly in Jesus Christ the one who is able to save them, who is able to open their blind eyes and to free them to everlasting life. We ask this in his name. Amen.